wonder if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, please, and chapter 4. One Peter chapter four, and I'm going to read from verse seven. One Peter chapter four and verse seven. I wonder as we read the word of God whether you'd be pleased to stand with me together for the reading of God's word. The scriptures say, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping love one another earnestly. Sorry, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, as we come to your word today, we want to ask of you that you would graciously anoint the speaking of your word and the hearing of it. And we pray that, Lord, the word heard would be mixed with faith, that we might respond in obedience. For, dear Lord, we don't want to be hearers only, but those who are doers of the word of God as well. Lord, would you aid us this morning? Would you grant us liberty? Would you grant us a sense of direction? And that, Lord, your burden would be upon us. We ask that, Lord, you would feed your people. You would minister your word to them by your spirit. Lord, let man and flesh be out the way. We are asking you, Lord, to be the speaker this morning. We are asking you, Lord, for us to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to each one individually. Lord, open our ear that we may perceive what you are saying to us, we ask. Open our eyes. Lord, deal with any hardness and resistance resistance of heart to your word, we pray. Help us to be of a right disposition as we come to your word now, that we might receive from you and might learn of you and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and be changed in the way we live. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, everybody. Well, over the last um, few months or so, perhaps even longer, As you know, I've been going through the book of Ephesians, and last week I had a different message that I felt the Lord lay on my heart, and the same is true for this week also. And God willing, we will get back to Ephesians. I know I said that last week, but I do sincerely mean it. And uh, the emphasis is on the willingness of the Lord. And uh, we do want to be led by the Spirit of God and know His direction um, for every message. We need His aid. We need His help. We need to know the burden of the Lord, don't we? and what he wants to bring to us. Yesterday, um, I was in London and uh, had the joy and blessing, privilege of sharing uh, the ministry with a good friend of mine, Paul Williams, and we were um, sharing the Word of God together, and some of the things that the Lord had given him dovetailed um, into the passage the Lord gave me, which was this particular one in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. And I felt that I should carry on and bring this same message this morning to you folk as well. So this, the title for the message 
is urgent imperatives for the last days. Urgent imperatives for the last days. I can't claim to have made that title up, but uh, there's a man called William MacDonald who wrote a big commentary, and one of the subtitles was this particular title, Urgent Imperatives for the Last Days. And I thought, I cannot do any better than that. That is perfect. That's exactly what this particular passage is all about. So I'm sticking with it, and I'm sure he doesn't mind because he's in glory now anyway. And I think he'll be rejoicing with the Lord. Um, So back to the first seven, let's have a look at this particular statement. I want us to be focusing this morning on what type of people we need to be in relation to the coming of the Lord. As you know, we are nearer than we've ever been. Stands to reason, doesn't it? But the time between now and when Jesus returns is so short when you put it in the light of eternity. It's a short space of time. And things are happening in the earth that the Lord is doing and allowing and bringing to pass to prepare for the return of his glorious son to come down from heaven and to reign upon this earth. And that's the sort of context we have here in 1 Peter 4. Peter is speaking to a company of believers who were pilgrims, as it were, He mentions that kind of terminology in chapter 1 and is writing to those who were under persecution and they were facing a lot of, well, something of opposition was coming in. And so with that backdrop, Peter is writing these words. So let's read from verse 7. He says to the church here, the end of all things is at hand. Now the word end here in the Greek, is the word telos, which doesn't simply mean that things are coming to just simply to stopping, but rather it speaks of a goal achieved, a result gained, or a realization. As I said, Peter is speaking here to the elect exiles of the dispersion. You read that in verse 1 of chapter 1. He's speaking to believers as pilgrims on the earth. And he's seeking to sharpen up their thinking and behavior in the light of the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming back again. And that's why I mentioned this word telos. You see, when it's saying the the end of all things is at hand, Peter isn't just simply saying everything's coming to a, a final conclusion. He's trying to draw their attention to the fact that the way things are currently in the world will not continue as they are because the Lord Jesus is coming back again. That's the implication. Things aren't just going to continue as they are. We often feel that's the case, don't we? One day seems to be very different, sorry, not so different from the last, and things just roll on as they always have done. No change, but the truth of the matter is there is change in the earth for those with eyes to see, spiritual eyes to perceive things. Things are changing, and the truth of the matter is the Lord Jesus is coming again soon. And we need to live in the light of that reality as believers. It's very important that we constantly remind ourselves of this fact. One of the doctrines within the church that is sadly lacking in being taught is the truth 
of the Lord's return. The second coming should be preached regularly within churches to remind believers of the fact they have a hope and the fact that we need to be ready. Both those things going hand in hand together. Very important. Now, some people think that the emphasis here on all things being at hand, that Peter is actually writing about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, rather than actually speaking about the Lord's return. I don't agree with that particular view. I understand why people have come to that conclusion. But I think when you look in Peter's second letter and chapter 3 and verse 11, it's obvious that Peter is speaking about right living in relation to the Lord's return. He says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to the promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter constantly says, since all these things are thus, that's a similar turn of phrase from what we just read in 1 Peter 4, isn't it? And in this particular context, he's speaking about being ready for the Lord's return, not about the fact that the temple's going to be destroyed in AD 70. And probably Peter's second letter was only written a couple of years before that even happened. So Peter, I think here in 1 Peter 4, is clearly speaking about the Lord's return. I think that's an important thing for us to bear in mind. Secondly, we go on to read this phrase in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That phrase, at hand, basically speaks of something that is very close in time. It speaks of something that is imminent. Something that is not a long way off. That's the impression you get when you read that particular phrase. I'm going to uh, give you the literal translation. It literally means to draw near, to approach. There is a sense, as I say, of Im imminence. So Peter is essentially saying that these believers should live in the light of the fact that Jesus could return. At that moment. That's the impression you get within the context of the text. Now, I'm not trying to get involved with whether you believe in a pre tribulation rapture or a post tribulation rapture or a mid tribulation rapture. That is not what I'm trying to focus on here. There is a sense where Peter is simply saying that believers need to be ready in the light of the fact that the end of all things is drawing near. And so it doesn't matter what era we're in. We need to live in the fact Jesus could come back. I need to be ready. He could come back in my lifetime. I need to be ready. That's the essence of what Peter is saying here. To draw near, to approach. Very, very important for us to live in the light of this truth. The end 
of all things is at hand. Not just some things, but the end of all things, as we currently know them, is ready to come to a conclusion. And not only, as it were, to come to conclusion, but to come to a glorious end for the sake of the believers. This is a wonderful thing. Actually, it's a very precious thing for us to realize that as believers, the Lord is coming back again, and that should bring something of a joy and rejoicing in your heart. If it doesn't, why not? Could it be that this world has too much in your, of your heart? Shouldn't do. We should be constantly living in the joy of the fact that the Lord Jesus can, is coming back soon. I remember even being a child when I was at school and I was in a particular class. And I remember just sitting there in this class on a beautiful day thinking, the Lord could come. The Lord could come. I know I probably should have been focusing on the maths. But the fact is the focus of my mind as a primary school child was the Lord could come. That should be something that really rejoices our hearts and causes us to be glad. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to think about this. But it is, you know, it's something that the, Peter draws to the attention of these believers at a time when the believers were really struggling. There was hardship, there's opposition, there's difficulty. How are you going to make it through? By focusing on the fact that the Lord is coming back again. That is the hope of the believer. If your hope is in this world, if your hope is in something to do with governments of this world, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Our hope isn't in natural, manly government. Our hope is in the government of God. And the fact that the only person that can sort this whole mess on the earth out at this moment is Jesus Christ. There's nobody else that can sort it out. Governments may try and have different schemes and ideas of what needs to be done or what doesn't need to be done. At the, end of the day, at the end of the day, the important thing to realize is only Jesus' government is righteous. Only Jesus' government can sort the mess out on the earth. That isn't to say that we're not to take an interest or in politics or in law or anything like that. I'm not trying to say that. And we're to pray for those in authority, according to 1 Timothy 2 that we might live a peaceful, you know, a quiet life in all godliness. That is absolutely essential. But don't put your hope in that government. We're certainly not to have a wrong view, a despising of authority, but at the same time, our hope is in the only government that can possibly sort the mess out on the earth, and that's the Lord Jesus. The sad thing is nobody would vote for him. But the good news is nobody needs to vote for him. He's already on the throne. <laughs> there's no voting here the work is already done so Peter brings to the disciples here look it's coming to an end persecution's coming to an end what a glorious thing it is friends that the Lord is going to wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people when he sees them again isn't that a glorious truth Aren't you pleased that the Lord is going to come back and do such things? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Praise the Lord for that. There's going to be no pain in heaven. There's going to be no disappointment. 
There's going to be no breakers of covenant. There's going to be no backbiting. There's going to be no murder because there's going to be no sin. And we thank God that that's going to be the case. There is a bright future for the saint of God. No matter what you're going through this morning, the truth is that there is an inheritance for the saints of God that cannot be taken away. And we're to live in the light of these things, dear brothers and sisters. The earth will do everything it can round about you to get your attention away from what's to come and to fix your minds on this earth. But God has said in his word, set your mind on things above, not on the things of earth for you died and your life is hid with Christ in God and when Christ who is our life appears we shall appear with him in glory that's the way we're meant to think away with these awful notions that we we should not be too heavenly minded otherwise we'll be no earthly good that's nonsense all these kind of little trite phrases that aren't biblical at all the person who is of earthly use is the one who is heavenly minded Get your mind focused on above. You won't be able to stop the joy stirring in your heart if you start thinking about heavenly things. Get your mind on the things above. Things on the earth will last for a time. And yes, when we're going through suffering, it does appear that it lasts forever. But this present time, the sufferings of this present time cannot be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. It's a, lot, a lot depends on where your focus is, what your priorities are. Are you an earthly-minded person or a heavenly-minded person? I'm not saying you're suffering to go away if you're heavenly-minded, but it means that you'll have the strength to press through in the suffering because you know it's not going to last forever. Dear friends, no persecution lasts forever. No persecution will last forever. There's coming a day where the Lord says, that's it. And the believer will be released from the, the torment and the mockery of men. And the Lord will wipe away that person's tears. What a day that's going to be. And for the saint who suffered most, the joy of the new day dawning in glory will be all the sweeter. Remember, the harder it gets for you, the sweeter it'll be for you. (laughs) Actually, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that our present suffering our afflictions are working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory so why oh why dear child of god are you living as though the only thing that counts is this life and tonight's football match i'm not saying you shouldn't watch tonight's football match <laughs> But I am saying this, brothers and sisters, there's something greater than a football match tonight. There's glory that lasts forever in heaven. And that's where our focus really needs to be, isn't it? Praise God. So Paul, sorry, Peter in 1 Peter 4 is basically drawing the attention of the saints of God to what is to come. But there is another side to this, brothers and sisters. You see, it is not only that it's drawing their attention unto there being a a hope in their hearts in the midst of persecution, but in the immediate context of 1 Peter 4, 7, he's drawing their attention to the fact that the Lord is going to return so that they, as the people of God, might be ready, might be prepared 
might be living the now in the right way so that when Jesus comes, there's a ready people for his coming. And that's the immediate context of this passage. And we need to be a people that are ready, that are living in the light of the Lord's return, showing that we're living in the light of the Lord's return by the way we function as believers. Peter's going to go on to show us how we are to function. But the truth of the matter is that every one of us in this room will one day give an account before Jesus personally for the lives we've lived. Every one of us. Every believer in this room will give an account to Jesus personally. And this life is a form of almost, if we can put it, probation. What are we going to be doing in this life will count for all eternity, won't it? And this life is so short, what, at best, 70, 80, 90 years? Maybe 100 if you do really well. But at the end of the day, it's short. We are here today and gone tomorrow, and then the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us. No one escaping. No one in this room will escape the judgment seat of Christ. The actual seat in the scripture from the Greek is called the Bema seat. It's certainly where athletes would go up to receive rewards for what they've done. But also we will be given an account for the way we've lived. And if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read about this kind of Account. 1 Peter, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 10. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now this essentially is speaking of those who function in ministry within the church. And what Paul is saying here is that each one will give an account for the quality of his work before the Lord. Is the work of gold, silver, and precious stones, or is the work of wood, straw, and stubble, all those kind of things, I think that's what it says, what quality is the work of? You see, we live in a day where what we're concerned about is how wide and vast the work is, how big the ministry is. But it seems to me when you look at 1 Corinthians 3, what the Lord is concerned about is what quality and type the work is really of. 
And the only way that you can have a ministry that is of gold, silver, and precious stones is if gold, silver, and precious stones are worked into your life. Because the work of the worker is the extension of the worker. And unless the gold is worked into the heart, the work will not be of gold. Unless silver is worked into the worker, the, silver, the work will not be of silver. It all depends on what is worked into our hearts and into our lives. You see, this is the most important thing for us to see. We need to allow the Lord to work in us what is necessary in order that the work itself would be of good quality. You cannot produce a work of gold with a heart of straw. (laughs) This is so important for those in ministry, any form of ministry. We need to ask the Lord to deal with our hearts. Otherwise, we can come to right conclusions with wrong attitudes. And we might be right outwardly, but are we right inwardly? What's the motive? What's at the bottom of the whole thing? That's what God is interested in. What's the reason you want to do that thing? You may have the skill to pull it off. But why? And it's only as God refines us and deals with us and purifies us and cleanses our motives and intentions that the work that we do in his name will be of gold, silver, and precious stones. But notice about the, the work that's mentioned in verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. None of us want to suffer loss, do we? You don't want to suffer loss in the work you do for the Lord, do you? You don't want it to be something that is of loss, that is burnt, that wasn't wrought through fellowship and communion with God. You don't want that. But it's possible for it to happen. Then he goes on to say, though he himself will be saved... We're not saved by the quality of our Christian works. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. You're not saved by the quality of your work. We are his workmanship. But we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, and we're created unto coming into the work that he has for us to come into. And so anything we do needs to be with a right heart and needs to be as something that flows out of your communion with the Lord. The way the gold is worked in, or the silver or the precious stone, is really out of your fellowship with God, your communion with the Lord. What's your communion with the Lord like? Do you open the word in the mornings and ask the Lord to speak to you? Do you fellowship with him? Do you ask him to shine his light on your heart? All these things are vital. Why are they vital? Because the day is at hand. Things are coming to conclusion. We can hide these things from one another 
and we can deceive one another with the kind of works we have, but we can't deceive the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. So we need to ask the Lord to deal with our hearts. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. I'm going to read from verse 9. It says this, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear. Now the glorious thing for the believer is this, that even though he has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give account of his life, he doesn't appear in the same vein as the unbeliever does who never came through to saving grace. And the glorious thing for the believer to realize is that he is no longer under the wrath of God. We are not suggesting that this coming judgment, this time of appearing before the Lord, means that you will have the wrath of God upon you if your work isn't of the best material. That's not what 1 Corinthians 3 says. And the word of God is quite clear that that wrath of God is destined for the unbeliever, not for the believer. The scriptures say clearly in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9 that the wrath of God is not going to come upon believers. We are not destined for the wrath of God. In fact, in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 we read, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Having been justified by the blood of Christ, much more you are going to be saved from the wrath of God by the Lord Jesus. Blessed be his name. What a wonderful thing it is to realize that as believers, we are not under the wrath of God. We're not destined for that judgment that is coming if we're truly born again of the Spirit. The Lord Jesus has purchased us with his blood on Calvary and the wrath of God was poured upon his Son. And therefore, we have been delivered from that wrath because the Lord Jesus has paid that on our behalf as believers and we are released from the penalty that should have been ours but Jesus has laid his life down for the sheep and purchased us with his blood it's a tremendous thing and therefore you are no longer waiting for a heavy judgment of God's wrath upon you that has passed you now call the Lord Abba, Father. That's your, that's the blessing you have to be able to call him Abba. So we, coming back to 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. There's two sides to this. Number one, we have a hope that is steadfast and certain and this hope is to come. And the other side of that is that we need to be ready. 
we need to be those that are prepared by God in order that we might be ready for his return. So moving on from this first statement, the end of all things is at hand. Then Peter goes on to say, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now the word self-controlled from the Greek means to be serious. You might have serious as your uh, tr- in your translation. It literally means to be of sound minds. Sobriety of mind is in view here. To be temperate. It is a. F- it is from two Greek words. One is sozo, which means to save, and the other is phren, which means mind. In other words. Put that together, and what have you got? A saved mind. (laughs) That's what it's really saying there. It means to be in one's right mind and implies the curbing of one's passions and to be able to reason and think properly in a sane manner. That's what that first word means when Peter is saying, be self-controlled. One of the things that we find so lacking in today's society is self-control. People are all over the place in their thinking. And there's very little sobriety. Can't say that word very well. Sobriety. There's very little seriousness of mind, sober thinking. Even within the church, we don't think sharp, sharply about what is to come and about the way we're meant to be living life. We don't, sorry, I didn't phrase that well. We don't think correctly. Our minds are not focused as they should be. We're not sober in our thinking. Even within the church, it's incredible. You know, some people can come into church and there's not a seriousness about the things of God. We can come into church so casually, can't we? Even as we meet together, there can be a casual attitude as we come to church. You see people almost treating the Lord in some places as though the Lord is just a mate of theirs. And people make jokes about the things of God. I find this absolutely astonishing. You have Christians just joking about the things of the Bible and, and the scriptures and on what God is really like. And I sort of think this is just not on. Joking about holy things. If you want to joke about me, that's absolutely fine. You know, we can have a good joke about me. You can just take the mickey out of me a bit if you like. I won't take too much offense. We're not talking here about taking ourselves seriously. Oh boy, when people take themselves seriously, they become awfully prickly. I don't mean here. I mean, they, 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 they take themselves so seriously. You offended me. You know, this kind of attitude where it's all a little bit, you know, do you know who I am? I am a man of stature, or whatever it is. Yeah, um, I remember hearing one story of a particular minister, and this dear lady came to him, and she was so upset 
She poured out her heart before him, telling him all her troubles and woes and all the rest of it for ages. And his counsel was, well, if I was you, I would simply go home, look in the mirror and have a good laugh. I mean, you wouldn't normally do that, would you? You certainly wouldn't do that to a sister. That really is (laughs) not on. But you see, actually, we take ourselves too seriously. And so you can have a little joke with me about me. I'm not going to be too fussed about that. But if you start joking about the scriptures, you'll have to find somebody else. I'm not interested. Because I'm going to take God very seriously. And so should you. We speak seriously about the things of God. And that's the important thing. Sober-minded, focus. Be of a sound mind. Now, the second word that Peter uses in this passage is, it it says self-controlled, and the second word also says sober-minded. This signifies to be free from the influence of intoxicants. The authorized version, or if you've got a New King James, it will say something like watch, which isn't possibly the best translation. But it basically means to be free from the influence of intoxicants. So in a sense, watching is what you should be doing, being vigilant. But, you know, many of us would sort of think, well, I am free from the intoxicants of drink. I don't get drunk. I don't go down the pubs and, and, and put back the wine and everything. So this verse clearly doesn't apply to me. Well, I would suggest to you something different. You see, you might not be intoxicated with alcohol, but there's other things you can be intoxicated with. There's cares of this world. You can be intoxicated with that. Just being anxious about things, constantly worrying about things, constantly unsettled about this problem, about that problem, about the other situation, and you live your life in this sort of realm of anxiety, and it can prevent you being sober-minded. Now, we do have cares. We do have concerns. We do have troubles. Nobody's suggesting that we're to live our lives as though we don't have any problems in them. That, that would be unrealistic. But the fact remains that as God's people, we need to make sure we're not drunk with our own cares. What does, the, what does Peter go on to say in chapter 5 and verse 7 of the same book? Casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. The word casting there from the Greek gives the idea of throwing something onto something else. If you like throwing a blanket onto something. That's the impression you get about casting your cares on the Lord. So the Lord wants you and I to learn to cast our cares upon him. In fact, let us bring everything to him that would be a means of us not being sober-minded. And ask the Lord that he would deal with that so that we can be focused on him. It's really important. So the question is, why are we to be self-controlled and sober-minded? Well, it's in the light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, but Peter specifically goes on that the reason we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded is for the sake of your prayers. The sake of your prayers. Is prayer important leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus? It's absolutely essential. Your prayer life, my prayer life. 
need to ask the Lord to help us. Because you see, friends, if you have got anxieties and cares and troubles just overrunning your life, you will find that you won't be praying very much. Because you'll be darting here, there, and everywhere just to deal with these particular problems. They take over your life. They take over your time. They wear you out. They wear you down. And the danger is that they quench your prayer life. And they do. You say, how do you know that? I speak by experience. I've been there and got the t-shirt. I know what it is to be able to be, by the grace of God, to have living prayer life. And knowing the power of the Spirit of God moving in that prayer life, and then that life being that life of prayer being quenched by anxiety and trouble. And what Peter is saying here is look, be sober minded, get your minds focused on what matters. Yes, we have cares, but let's cast them on the Lord so that we might be freed from those burdens to pray to receive the Lord's burdens. That's the key. This verse is not suggesting that God isn't interested in your troubles. He is interested in your troubles, but you never give them to him. Cast your cares on the Lord. Throw them on him. Give them to him. For he cares for you. Self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. One of the most important things you and I can be into in the last days as believers is prayer. Do you remember the Lord Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Essentially, the house of God is not firstly to be a house of preaching. In fact, the prayer meeting of this church is more important than this meeting. It is. I'm just going by what the scriptures say, that that's the Lord's priorities. The most important meeting in your life is the prayer meeting. The most important meeting in my life is a prayer meeting. You say, where does it say? Well, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then when you look at 1 Timothy 2, when Paul gives to Timothy the pattern for the church locally, the thing he says is, first things, first of all, I desire that we pray for all different types of people. First on the list. What priority is prayer in our lives? This is absolutely vital. The prayer life of the believer. Ian Bounds wrote a marvellous book on prayer. Power Through Prayer. I think it's one of the best books I've ever read. It's not very big, but it's so worth reading. It says, he says on one occasion, men are looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. Men who will pray, seek the face of God. Women who will pray. God wants you to be a praying man or a praying woman. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, please. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, Jesus speaks to the people and he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why does he speak about not losing heart in the context of prayer? Because that's the very thing that stops you praying. When you lose heart, you stop praying. Very often, pray and don't lose heart. Keep going, in other words. Press in. Press in with the Lord. 
Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to him, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Isn't that amazing? Jesus ties in this parable concerning persistent prayer with his very return. In the context of faith. Keep on praying is the sense in this particular passage. Now you have this widow from the city. It's almost humorous. She's not going to get justice from this unjust judge, but she still keeps coming back. And she's so frustrated by it, she will not give up. And she's at the point where she's boiling over almost and ready to thump him. That's the impression you get from the text. I think in the original Greek, the word actually says, lest she hit me under the eye. (laughs) That's the context. She's so distraught. And this unjust judge is not interested in giving her justice because he's not interested in justice at all. All he wants is an easy life. But because she still keeps coming back to him, he just says, okay, I give in. I'll give her justice. That's the context of this particular passage. Now, friends, that parable is telling you something, isn't it? It's not telling you that the unjust judge is God. Because the Lord isn't like an unjust judge. But what it's telling you is this. If an unjust judge gives a woman justice, a man who is not interested in justice himself, but he gives her justice, even though he's not just. How much more will the Lord give you justice who keep coming to him in prayer? That's the emphasis of the passage. So we've got to keep on praying. And it's in the context of the Lord's return. Keep on keeping on. Somebody wrote to me in a letter once many years ago. Keep on keeping on. Okay. Back to 1 Peter chapter 4. One Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of of sins. This phrase, above all, from the Greek, literally means, or more properly means, before all, in order of importance. In other words, what Peter is saying, this is the most important thing. That's quite a statement, isn't it? That's what the Greek means. Above all, before all the other things, Keep loving one another fervently. 
or keep loving one another earnestly is another translated trans, uh, way of translating it. Keep loving one another earnestly. The word earnestly from the Greek denotes strained or stretched. Someone said it is used of a runner who is moving at maximum output with taut muscles straining and stretching to the limit. That's the impression that Peter's giving through this particular phrase. Have a think about this. This is one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament. First things first, Peter is saying. Above all, put this as a priority. In the light of what? In the light that all th- the end of things is, is at hand. He's saying, love one another earnestly. It means that you've got to be willing to be stretched a little. Now, I don't know about you, but when I normally stretch, I quite like it. I quite like a good stretch in the morning. I don't mind it at all. You know, you just get up and however you do your particular form of morning stretch. But the particular stretch meant here has to do more with a straining. And the Lord wants us as the body of Christ to learn to strain a little in our love for one another. In other words, love is not simply a nice feeling that you get for another person with goosebumps up and down your back. I mean, I quite like goosebumps up and down my back. I really do. I quite like the feeling of that and the wonderful exaltation. Not exaltation, but the, you know, you have wonderful feelings, don't you, sometimes? When you, you, you think of somebody and you have that love and that wonderful, gooey feeling, all very nice and good. But it doesn't accomplish very much, does it? It makes me feel good, but that's not the point of love. Love is not self-centered. Love isn't about, I'm going to love this person so I get nice feelings. Love is about giving out to another and it costing you something in the process. That's the nature of true love. And the church should be expressing this kind of love leading up to the Lord's return. How much of a strain is there in your Christianity concerning your love for the brethren? I'm not talking about people outside here. I'm talking about the church. You see, the word of God says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. This is what Jesus said, by your love for one another. Our love for one another is a testimony to the world that we belong to Christ. But when there's backbiting, fightings, almost devouring one another within the house of God, it ruins the testimony to a fallen and lost world. How can we go out and evangelize to others when we're hitting each other over the head within the church? Why should they join us? (laughs) but we need a testimony of true love for one another. Do you remember what the scriptures say in 1 John 4, 
verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves has been born of God. How do you know when somebody is born of God? Well, they love the brethren. You say, that's pretty strong. I'm just saying what the word says. How do you know that somebody is really born again of the Spirit of God? They show forth the fruit of the Spirit, don't they? Is that not true? Is it not true that there should be evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life if they claim to be born again? What is conversion without true conversion, right? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self all those things, but it flows from the first one, which is love. What's the evidence that you've been born again of the Spirit? Love. Yes. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves has been born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. Listen, he who loveth not knoweth not God. Yes, but so-and-so's got so much knowledge. Not interested. He who loveth not knoweth not God. Yes, but they seem to be so exuberant. No, 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 no. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. It's a great song. Oh, brothers and sisters, there's so much fighting within the house of God. This person's against this person. That person's against that person. We live in a society that doesn't know what love is. Are you aware of that? I'm absolutely certain. We live in a society that does not know what love is. I think that's one of the saddest things. We don't know what love is. You have children growing up in families and they don't know what love is. You have distortions of what love is being taught in schools that's not love at all. There's been a replacement of love in society for lust. And they call it love, but it's unclean. And it's completely self-centered. Oh, I'm just going to abandon my wife because there's another woman that's come on the scene and I just love her. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. The reason that you're leaving your wife is because you don't love. And what happens when you've had enough of the other relationship? Children are growing up and they don't know what love is. I think of Elizabeth Elliot. I sometimes look at YouTube and I put Elizabeth Elliot on for a good dose of reality. For me. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband as a missionary. He was killed. 
And Elizabeth Elliot went to those same people that killed her husband and preached the gospel to them. And they got saved. Amazing. I want to tell you something. That is love. She had a tenth month old baby when her husband was murdered. Trying to bring the gospel. And she went out to the same people that killed her husband and brought the gospel. Friends, that is love. That is Jesus in Elizabeth Elliot. I think of Paul in Romans 9. Romans 9. Verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. The very people that were hounding Paul, some of them would have had him cured. And he's saying, I could wish, essentially, that I'd be cut off from Christ if it meant I could get them to heaven. This is Jesus in Paul. Do you want to know why so many of us are so unhappy a lot of the time in society? It's because we're so self-centered. And if we realize that the Lord Jesus doesn't own us a dime, and we begin to realize that every breath is simply a gift of God's grace, and we began to live for others, joy would begin to come up in our hearts. I think of people like Corrie Ten Boom who sacrificially hid Jewish children in her house at such cost to her ultimately. I think of people like George Mueller that gave up so much to bring children in to an orphanage. He was called the robber of the cruel streets. And the world applauded him. What a testimony. This love flowing out. Brothers and sisters, love is not a feeling. It's not something we simply do in word, but in deed and in truth. Ask the Lord to lay it on your heart to pray for somebody in the fellowship you haven't seen for a while or somebody who might need help. Or go and seek to speak to somebody who's going through difficulty. The Lord wants us to be a people that exemplify something of this love so that the world might see what true love is compared with what they're involved with. May the Lord give us the grace. Now, friends, the question is, how do we do this? When you think about it, how do we love like Jesus? How do we love like Paul? 
How do we love like Elizabeth Elliot? How can we love like Corrie Tim Boom, George Muller, other people we can... How can we have that kind of love for one another? We haven't got it in us, at least of ourselves. How can we live the Sermon on the Mount? It's impossible, isn't it? Of course it is. But that's the fact of the matter, you see. God is not requiring you to love other people with your natural powers. He has given you the Holy Spirit. He's not asking you in your natural man to try to grit your teeth and like somebody that you don't get on with. He's not wanting us simply to try to get on with people in a likable kind of way. He's wanting us to learn to love one another. It's a whole different level, and you can't do it of yourself, but you've been given the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God says in the Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, these words, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit does the loving through you to people that you naturally wouldn't, be, wouldn't feel a lovely. And there's going to be people in church life that wind you up or rub you up the wrong way or whatever it may be. God is not asking you to love them with the natural man. He's given you his spirit so that the demonstration of his love for that person might even flow through you and through me. And you say, well, okay, you've said that love is not last and it's important for us to have love. Well, what is love then? Well, you remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. If I speak with the, sorry, 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We've spoken about this. I think we might have mentioned it last week. Who wants to be a noisy gong? I mean, you just deafen people, don't you? It's like going up to somebody and going bang, 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 bang on a gong. That's hardly a way to minister to the saints, is it? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I find this one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible. Imagine having faith to move mountains and understanding all spiritual mysteries, and then before God you're nothing. Isn't that a frightful thought? I find it amazing, especially when you consider the elevation of the importance of faith in the Word of God. But you see, if it's not accompanied with love, there's nothing. Love is to be the root and motivation of every action of the believer. So you see, love isn't about just being nice to one another. There's times when perhaps we might have to speak a word that's quite difficult. But if you speak that word that's quite difficult to another, you've got to make sure that the root and intention of that word is love. Motivation. What, comes, what is at the root of something is everything with the Lord. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Isn't that amazing? I can even give my body to be burned. But if love isn't motivating my actions, it doesn't mean I gain anything. 
Love is patient and kind. In other words, brothers and sisters, it's long-suffering. You put up with people a bit. We all have our foibles, our different backgrounds and things that we have come we all have odd, our oddities, if you like. You may not understand what makes me tick. And I might not understand what makes you tick. And we might not understand each other because of backgrounds we have. But there's a bearing with one another. And also there's this matter of long-suffering when people offend us. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Arrogance is horrible, actually, isn't it? Do you know, you can almost find that if somebody says something wrong, but they're humble and broken about it, you can overlook when they don't quite say things rightly. But when somebody's arrogant, well, that's not love. Or rude. Let's be careful about how we speak. Rudeness. Just rudeness. How we speak to one another. Well, I don't like her. You know, that kind of attitude. What kind of place has that got in the house of God? Oh, so-and-so. Yes, she knows a lot of the Bible, but what a pain. I wish she'd go to another church. And then the church would be perfect. Because I'm here. And if so-and-so... Yes, that other person over there, they're, they're a little bit better, but they're still not up to scratch, really. <laughs> if I got rid of both of them, then we would have a perfect church. Alas, they're still here. You know, that kind of attitude. What is that? Where does that belong in the house of God? It does not insist on its own way. You do things my way. You know, let's be careful that we don't insist on it. But I'm right. I've heard from the Lord. Well, so-and-so thought she's heard from the Lord as well. Yes, but she's wrong. I'm always right. And I always get things right. I would never normally phrase it like that, but it's true. Everything I've said has come to pass. I always hear from the Lord. And so-and-so's a young believer anyway. She hasn't got a clue what she's talking about but she's in a lot of need. No, we must insist on my own way. Is that love? Do you know, actually, it's very interesting. The Word of God says in James chapter 3 that the wisdom of God is willing to yield. Is that interesting? You know, Guy was here this morning. He won't mind me making him exhibit A for you. And he, he, he had it on his heart, obviously, to see, wrote a little note down. I don't know where I put it, but he wrote a little note down during the worship time of a particular hymn that he wanted to sing. And I was all poised, ready for the next song. And I thought, ah, this is good. I've got the next song here. I'm just ready to play. You know, when you really got a song on your heart, and then Gee bursts my bubble comes up to the lectern and says, I think we ought to sing this. And you know, the gloom sets in. <laughs> sort of think to myself, 
Why does he do this to me? You know, this isn't what an elder should be there for. (laughs) I can't cope with this kind of thing. I've got this other song, and I'm right. Somebody else has prayed along my song, and you're coming along saying your song is the one that we should sing. Well, do you know what I could have done? I could have thought, well, Guy thinks we should sing this song, but I think what we need to do is this one. But I didn't do that by the grace of God. <laughs> if, 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 if I had done, I wouldn't be able to preach this to you right now, right? <laughs> so basically, I, I went with what Guy said. I thought, okay, we'll do the song that Guy said. And we sung this song, and just, the Lord took the song up. I thought, oh, Lord, thank you for sparing me getting it wrong and doing the song that I thought we should do. But you see, there's a flexibility that we've got to come to without compromise for the sake of love, preferring one another, even when we think we're militantly right. Why do marriages often go wrong? It's insistence on our own way. But I had to yield last time. Why does he is why is he the one who always has to get his own way? What does it say here? It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I've been mentioning these things last week, but let me mention them again. The times where I can be most irritable is when I've got a pressing engagement and I'm trying to get ready for something and one of the children come into the room and says, Dad, do you want to have a look at my horse? I mean, I sort of think, no, I don't. Please leave me alone. I'm trying to prepare for this message. And you want me to look at a horse. Do you realize we've only got 20 minutes before we're meant to be at church? Come and ride on my horse, Daddy. No, leave me alone. You know, and then you sort of inwardly think, where is this? Just, you know. And inwardly, within that moment, you can lose what's more important. There are times when you have to say to your children, now, you must let me get on with this, but you mustn't be irritable about it. Otherwise, they will see that you are not interested with them. And they're almost getting the impression that Jesus is taking their children away. Is that what we want to give? No. But the Lord never acts like that. Love. Don't get irritable. These are simple, simple, practical things. You say, you're not preaching very deeply this morning, John. I wanted, brothers and sisters, these, this is the nuts and bolts of Christian living. And we can't overlook them. This is authentic Christianity. And I'm bringing it to you. Don't get irritable with your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter. Or if somebody's left a brick on the floor at night, eh, David? And you go into that bedroom and you've told them to pack the thing away. And you tread on this thing in the dark. It can be through the roof. And then how are you going to respond? Well, you know every time you respond in love, don't you? Yes. 
These things find us out, don't they? And if you feel that you're a wonderful, perfect saint, let me tell you, the Lord will bring somebody into this fellowship that will be so frustrating for you, and the Lord will do it as bringing a spotlight on you to show what's really in your heart. And that person will become your greatest blessing. Because through them, the Lord has shown you what's in your heart and you know what to deal with. Oh dear. <laughs> Love is patient and kind. It does not boast. I've said it. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. What is the nature of God's love? It endures. Why are you here this morning? Because you have a good level of Christianity. No, because God has loved you. And he's put up with all your backslidings. And he's seen all your misdemeanors. He's seen all the arrogance and pride and all these things that are in your heart. You say, I'm not proud. There you go. We need the Lord to deal with us so much, don't we? Above all, keep on loving one another. Why do we need to, though? Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. I think that's one of the most beautiful phrases in the New Testament. I'm going to read you what John Gill said about this phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. John Gill is one of my favorite commentators. I know Chrissy likes him, too. He just says things so well. Look what he says here. For charity, love, shall cover the multitude of sins, referring to Proverbs ten twelve. not a man's own sins, but the sins of others, and not from the sight of God, for from that only the blood and righteousness of Christ covers sins, even all the sins, the whole multitude of the sins of God's elect. But from the sight of men, both of those against whom they are committed and others, since charity or true love thinks no ill, but puts the best constructions upon the words and actions of fellow Christians and does not take them up and improve and exaggerate them, but lets them lie buried in oblivion. It takes no notice of injuries, offenses, and affronts, but overlooks them, bears with them, and forgives them so that they are never raked up and seen any more, which prevents much scandal, strife, and trouble. I couldn't have said that any better in a thousand years. <laughs> That's exactly what we're talking about here. We don't want scandal in the house of God because people outside will sniff it. We want a testimony of God's love within his house. Right, back to 1 Peter 4. I must end. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 9 here, brothers and sisters. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Notice again an emphasis on attitude. Without grumbling. doesn't just say host one another and you're allowed to be annoyed about it. But no, it says that you've got to do it without grumbling. What does it mean 
in this verse to show hospitality. This is very interesting. The word literally means from the Greek, friendly to strangers, or love of strangers. Essentially, it is implying people come into your door who are believers in ministry who have need. They're strangers, but they're part of the body of Christ. And you take them in, and you feed them, and you give them something to drink, and you look after them. There's those that will come upon your path that are in great need within the body of Christ. Those who minister the word, those who travel, they might need to stay at your house. That will mean you drop in your routine, won't it? And having to say, no, come in, brother, come in, sister. I'm here to look after you. That's the kind of attitude that Peter is speaking here, of here. And it becomes all the more apparent what this means when you look at it in the light of persecution. You see, in the last days, people are going to be fleeing from houses one to another. And there might be somebody who knows your door, and they know you're a believer. And they're struggling because their parents hate them. And they run to you and knock on your door. What kind of response will they get? This is love. Show hospitality to strangers. Allow your routine to be kicked about. We're not here for everything to just work in its place for our benefit. We want to know a little bit of that stretching. In the last days, friends, brothers are going to betray brothers. There's going to be a lot more lovelessness about in the world. And people are going to be after people. Are we going to home them? Are we going to be like Corrie Boom with the Jewish children? That's what's meant here in verse 9 by showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. So important. Verse 10 as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each one has received a gift. This word gift, um, the word here is not the usual Greek word, but it refers to a special spiritual enablement. I think actually the word's charisma. Yeah. The word's charisma, thank you, from the Greek. And therefore, it's speaking about a particular gift that the Lord bestows on a believer to function in service. That can be a gift of speaking forth the word of God, or it can be a particular gift in serving the people of God. It might be one or the other. You can read about these in 1 Corinthians 12, or you can read about them in Romans. But the thing is that when that gift is given, it's not given for the bolstering of that particular person who has the gift. The gift is given for the serving of the people, even if it's a teaching gift. If you teach the Word of God, it is not a platform for your own name, certainly not as far as the Bible is concerned. It's a platform to serve people. A minister is a servant. Therefore, we should aim in our hearts to serve you with the word of God. Essentially, when Guy and I bring the word of God, we are to serve you with teaching from the word of God. 
so that you are built up, so that you are edified, so that you are strengthened, so that you are nourished. That's the key. And Peter says in this particular verse, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of varied grace. Once you have been given a grace in a particular area, a particular gifting, you then become a steward of that gift. And what you do with that gift is of paramount importance. If you just allow that gift to be wasted away through laziness or whatever it may be, the body of Christ will lose out on being blessed through that particular gift. But if somebody, for example, is a teacher of the Word of God, he must be in the Word of God regularly, trying to learn the Scriptures the best he can to be able to serve the people of God. He needs to strain a little bit. Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan speaker, would study for 13 hours a day. I don't know how he did it, but anyway, 13 hours a day, often in the Word of God, in his study, learning, being before God. We, I don't study 13 hours a day, but I've got to learn to up. What about in gifts of music or whatever it may be? That is to be used for the glory of God and to help the saints worship the Lord. Not to show the saints that you're a brilliant guitarist. And unfortunately, you find that novices within the house of God are quickly put up the front if they've got a gift with a guitar. And before long, what are they doing? They're just showing how good they are. It takes maturity with gifting to come through to a place where the people don't see the skill. <laughs> All they see is the enabling of that skill to worship God. But that means you've got to learn. That means you've got to practice. All these things. What about somebody who's got a real gift in, in hospitality, in serving others? Do it cheerfully unto the Lord. Do it with all your heart. There's a reward for these things. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Don't turn to it, but I'm just going to read you quickly this verse in Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace of God, so by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and, many, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Use the gifting God has given you. Use it. 
If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Notice it's all about the attitude that you adopt with the gift God has given you. It comes back to the gold, silver and precious stones a bit, doesn't it really? May the Lord help us to be good stewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1 speaks about this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithful. Be faithful with what God has given you. You don't know the effect on what God has given you upon another believer. Let's come to an end. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards, there's the word, of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. God will never require you to serve him without giving you the grace to do so. He always gives grace for his service. And if you're trying to go beyond the sphere of the gifting that God has given for you, you won't find the grace of God in that. We need to stay within the sphere of the gifting God has given us, but we must do it unto the building up of the body of Christ. Well, you say, why? Because the end of all things is at hand. The judgment's coming. I want to be able to use what God has given me to the best of the grace to the fullness of the grace that he has given me. And that should be the same for all of us. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, the goal is the, for the Lord to be glorified. If you serve your brothers and sisters, you've got a real gifting in a particular area of service. If you do that, do it to the glory of God. And when you're ministering under the grace of God, whether it be a practical service or a spiritual gift in a different way, whatever it may be, the person who's receiving the blessing of that will give glory to God. Because it'll be the Lord's grace upon you. It won't be natural. This is the way the church is to function. This is the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you, I, are part of the body of Christ. What has God invested in you? What has God given to you? What are you doing with what God has given? Ask him for the ability to come to the fullness of what God has given you, not so that others may say of you, Oh, what a jolly good fellow. But so that others will say of God, isn't God good? That's the goal. And we need to do this in relation to the fact the end of all things is at hand. Do you know, brothers and sisters, what I've been doing this morning, essentially? I've been teaching you eschatology. You say, no, you haven't. You only mentioned the rapture in passing. You didn't speak about Gog and Magog. 
You didn't speak about the millennial reign. Could have done that. You didn't speak about this, that, and the other. You spoke about things like love. You spoke about behavior. What's that got to do with the end times? And the answer is everything. You can have all the knowledge of eschatology, but if it hasn't affected your life, what is the point? The Lord is concerned with our behavior, our attitudes, what we're like in the last days. Do you need to study eschatology? Of course you do. Study Think about these things. Obviously, focus, as we said at the start, about the Lord's return. Again, Jonathan Edwards used to say, used to pray, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Yes, we've got to study eschatology. But it seems to me that in the light of the end times teaching, the Lord is saying in his word that we need to learn to love one another that we need to be sober-minded, that we need to be certain things so that we're ready and waiting for his return, ultimately unto his glory, unto his praise. Remember, friends, these things that are needful in the church are by the grace of God. May the Lord write them on our hearts. Amen. Lord, as we end our time together, we ask that you would write this word on our hearts and we would go from this place changed by the grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.